Welcome to episode number 203 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Kriegsman. CXO Talk brings the most innovative, most original, most interesting business thinkers to have an in-depth conversation about important and very often disruptive issues. And these are people who are genuinely shaping some important part of our world. Today on episode 203 of CXO Talk, we're going to be discussing artificial intelligence and particularly the ethical and the public policy and the legal challenges and implications associated with that. We have two amazing guests. Our first guest is Kay Firth Butterfield, who is a legal scholar and one of the, the world's top experts in the ethical issues and legal issues associated with artificial intelligence and robotics. And our other guest is David Bray, who is the CIO for the Federal Communications Commission. So let's begin with Kay. Kay Firth Butterfield, how are you? And thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. So Kay, please tell us about your background. Well, by background, as you say, I'm a lawyer. I was a barrister and judge in England before I moved to the United States uh, about eight years ago. And here I've been teaching law and um, thinking about artificial intelligence. Uh, I recently uh, was the chief officer of a, an AI company um, running the ethics advisory panel. And we were the first uh, AI company that actually allowed its CEO to go out and give talks and talk about what we were doing. And so that was a great privilege for me to be there at the founding edge uh, of that work and, and to be able to talk about what we were, what we were doing. Um, in the last month, I moved to be the executive director of Austin, AI Austin, and um, that's a brand new collaboration uh, between academia, industry, government, uh, medical um, school, and others. And although we're based in, in Austin, we're actually having a very global outreach program. So um, I'm really looking forward to taking that forward with my, my co-founding advocates. I still do have an academic background, so I'm a distinguished scholar at the Strauss Center at the University of Texas, and I teach a course on artificial intelligence and the law for the law school there. I am founder of an organization, a, a, a consortium at the University of Texas, which is, we call it CLEAR because its actual title is quite long, uh, the Consortium on Law and Ethics of Artificial, and artificial Intelligence and Robotics. And then I am vice chair of the IEEE's project, another snappy title, the um, Global Initiative for Ethical Considerations in the Design of Autonomous Systems. Okay, so if we want to talk about law and AI, <laughs> you are the person to talk to. Well, I'll try to be. <laughs> okay, and, and our other guest is my uh, good friend and colleague, David Bray, who has been on CXO Talk another time, uh, another time, several other times. 
Uh, and David is the CIO for the Federal Communications Commission. Dr. David Bray, welcome to CXO Talk again. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's great to be here and uh, look forward to discussing how we can both deal with the basic fundamentals of artificial intelligence and, and how we can begin to use it in organizations, both public and private, as well as how we can actually start making sense of the ethical issues involved with AI use. Okay, so let's, let's dive in. Um, when we talk about AI, what, what do we mean? David, what, tell us, what, what are we actually talking about here? I think we need to get that out of the way first. I think that's absolutely true. So artificial intelligence probably includes many different things to different people. And I think I generally talk about it as machine learning, it's neural networks. It really is using technology to try and emulate basically something that appears to be intelligent. And I want to be very careful about using the word to be appears to be intelligence because, I mean, that gets in the whole question of what's intelligent behavior in the first place. Um, we can be very human-centric and say, well, humans are intelligent because we are able to make sense of challenges put before us. We can be goal-oriented. I think when it comes to talking about AI, what we're really talking about is using technology to solve problems or achieve goals in ways that appear to mirror um, intelligence um, uh, beyond just something that someone has programmed the machine explicitly to do. And Kay, as an attorney, uh, how do you think about the definition of AI? Well, I, I will piggyback on what David said in, in terms of AI, but um, I think that basically we're talking about a scholarship that has been going on now for a, for a long time and um, a number of different ways of achieving what we call artificial intelligence. But again, I'm going to piggyback on, on David as to what might be intelligence. Uh, I think that uh, there's, we need to perhaps lift from the UK government's recent report uh, that artificial intelligence can be adequately used as an umbrella for all the different um, things going on in this space, all the different scholarship going on in this space. When we talk about AI, it seems like it has become the ex explosive growth in, in the jargon value of AI and in commercial companies wanting to piggyback on top of the terminology. And so clearly AI is, is very important, but can, can either of you shed a little bit of light more specifically on why it's so important, why this explosive growth, and why we should actually care about the legal, policy, ethical issues of AI? So, well, oh, go ahead. You go first, Kay. Please, Kay, I, go ahead. Well, okay. I, I think that one of the things that sticks out in my mind is some research that McKenzie did recently where, it, where they describe AI as a, contribu a contributing factor to the transformation of society. And I just want to quote what they're saying about the transformation of our society, that it's happening 10 times faster and at 300 times the scale or roughly 3,000 times faster than the impact of the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, a lot of people compare this uh, revolution to the Industrial uh, Revolution, but I think it's the speed and the real core underpinning 
that AI is giving to, is contributing to that transformation of our society that makes the, these discussions so important. So I would build on what Kay was saying and, and really say that I think AI has had three waves. We're kind of in wave three, in my opinion. Uh, the first wave, you actually can go all the way back to a Nobel Prize winner, Herb Simon. Uh, Herbert Simon, interestingly enough, actually uh, started off actually with New York government and public service, and he observed what he called administrative behavior. And what he saw in terms of how people did administrative behavior was generally people didn't go beyond sort of the landscape of what they already knew to be true. And he had this conclusion that the challenge is, is how can you help people and organizations go beyond the landscape of what they know how to be true? And interestingly enough, that later led him to do behavioral economics, uh, behavioral uh, psychology, and eventually do artificial intelligence. And so in some respects, uh, observing how people make its administrative behaviors in public service gave rise to artificial intelligence. That was the first wave. Uh, the later waves tried to look at what was called decision support systems and expert systems, and that would be the late 80s and the 90s. And I think where we're at now is uh, the third wave is really occurring, quite frankly, as Kay said, because computers have gotten fast enough, memory has gotten cheap enough, uh, the internet is now connecting things so that we can actually now do distributed problem solving at a scale that wasn't possible, quite frankly, in the 80s or 90s, or when Herb Simon was trying to do his work in the 70s. And so why AI has become the buzzword, in some respects, and I would say it's replaced cloud as the new buzzword. In some respects, cloud was the buzzwords of the 40s and sorry, four or five years ago. That said, and, and interesting enough, even though it's replaced that buzzword, in some respects, artificial intelligence is only possible now because we do have cloud computing. So you have that elasticity of CPU cycles, of memory, and quite frankly, just the, the sheer scope of being able to collect data and try and make sense of it. That's why I think artificial intelligence has really reached the crescendo that we're hearing about it right now. And, and I think also we're beginning to actually see artificial intelligence. So the general public can see it so much more. And they've, they've Interestingly, uh, the Future of Advocacy did a YouGov um, poll in the United Kingdom just recently, which showed how little the general public actually understand about AI. But um, when they go out of their door and they can see, for example, an autonomous vehicle or truck, then that's really um, leading to the way that we've had much more reporting in the press um, about AI. And so I think it's it's not just the technology, but it's also the fruits of the technology that are being seen that contribute to the conversation being uh, so important at the moment. So we see, uh, as you said, we see technologies such as autonomous vehicles coming out. And if you're in San Francisco, you can often see these uh, driverless cars mm -hmm. or autonomous cars driving around the streets. And then things like uh, chatbots, that are visceral reminders to people or make people aware of the, the, the personal impact of these technologies. So it's not just hidden behind the surface. But all of this creates a set of dynamics with profound implications for, for ethics, for the legal system, and for policymakers. And uh, Kay, why? Why is that the case? Well, I think it's because we are, as lawyers, we are always um, catching up. Um, and so, for example, uh, in a common law system, 
you unless you have legislation you have to wait for something to happen before you can have case law decision made about it so uh we we're sort of in this holding pattern at the moment where we're either waiting for um governments to create legislation or um for self-regulation to to spin out and i, I think that's vitally important or or the case law piece and so you know if you look at europe for example they have gone with regulation of of a lot of these things and and more and more so whereas of course in the united states you know we've we've seen a very slow progress just through the nhtsa um trying to work out how to um govern or regulate uh safety on autonomous vehicles and David, what about the, why is this uh, such a potential uh, quagmire? Why is this so fraught with difficulty or challenge from a, a, a policy perspective? So that's where I'll put on my Eisenhower Fellow hat, uh, where I was in Taiwan and Australia and had a chance last February and March to talk to them both about their strategies for the end of everything, but also in terms of the expected impacts of artificial intelligence. And I think... First is there is the need for educating the people in a way that is accessible to everyone, not just computer scientists, uh, as to what artificial intelligence can and cannot do. I think uh, we may have the challenge of people have been educated in the respects through the movies, and the movies, of course, uh, show a very uh, non-realistic situation in terms of you know, artificial intelligence deciding to change its ultimate goal and somehow taking over the world or something like that. Um, you know, we actually do not currently have a programming language that allows you to have the program itself change its ultimate goal. It may be able to change sub goals, but we don't have the ability to actually have a machine change its ultimate goal yet. Um, and, and people say yet, but then I'm like, again, it, it's, 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 it's trying to have a conversation that involves everyone, not just the experts on artificial intelligence that is going to make uh, tackling these issues both in the public sector and in the private sector challenging. And I think, as Kay said too, I think it's a need that we need to have a little bit more demonstration projects. Uh, before there is any rush to try and do any policy, if you don't even begin to show what's possible, um, both from a good sense and also what maybe you wanna try and avoid, if, if you don't show what's possible, it's really hard to have an informed conversation. And so hopefully over the next year or two, we can show how artificial intelligence beyond just autonomous cars maybe can make local communities healthier or safer, um, maybe address things at the national level. One of the things I'm tracking with interest is in California, they actually are using machine learning right now to actually help set bail decisions. And so you feed in the facts of the case, um, and it actually makes a bail recommendation. The interesting thing about that is it actually helps weed out things that shouldn't relate to your bail decision. It shouldn't be related to your height or your weight or your gender or your race. And so in some respects, artificial intelligence in that sense could actually make things um, more ethical because we know what the algorithm is and we know that it's not taking in extraneous information that should not be important. Except looking at that on the, on the different footing of, um, of helping with sentencing, you know, there was the recent research um, done where uh, around bias, inbuilt bias in sentencing, so that um, people of colour were, were, were still getting um, heavier sentences than, than white people. 
um, using the models. So I think we have to be very careful around how we build these systems. Oh, I agree 100%. And I think that's where one of the things I really want to see happen is making the algorithm open source in terms of what weight and what factors it's considering. Um, so I agree, if you're only going to base it on past decisions, then if past decisions were made by humans and biased, then don't be surprised the machine itself is going to be biased too. Uh, I think that's where there needs to be a conversation about where do you want to get your data because if the data is biased, it will result in biased decisions. However, that's also where the machine itself can probably pick up and actually begin to identify, wait, these human past decisions were biased. I mean, we know, I mean, it's, it's a sad reality. Your height should not relate to the amount of money you earn as, say, a chief financial officer. But we know that there's a very strong correlation between your height, the, height, the taller you are, the more you earn as a chief financial officer, even though there's no relation to the job with height. And so we know that humans, we all have inherent biases, even if we try not to. That's actually where I'm a big fan of the, the phrase collective intelligence. And what collective intelligence is, how do you arrange both human and technology nodes so they make smarter, more intelligent decisions without, as, I mean, you can never remove bias, but as less bias as possible. So I think it's worth talking about not only doing pioneering projects on artificial intelligence and learning what works and doesn't work, but also doing experiments also in collective intelligence that is a combination of humans as well as technology nodes to ideally actually begin to eliminate bias from both groups. So is the real issue here uh, the fact that we're now asking machines to make decisions that people otherwise would have made regarding judgment? Is that the is that the issue that's kind of driving the ethics or what's 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 driving? Mm -hmm. Certainly, that's one of one of the issues. And if you think about what Europe is doing um, with the, the general directive that will come into um, force next year, so very soon, um, they're saying, well, we want transparency, we want openness. So if a machine is making decisions that adversely affect citizens of the EU. We want that machine to be able to explain itself because the, the human would have been able to, and so therefore the machine would be able to. So I, I think it, it, it's very much around that human in the loop um, notion that previously human beings were doing this, and now we're, we're increasingly giving over some of these decisions to our, to our, our artificial intelligence. But David, uh, uh, did... just to build on it real quick, I was going to say, and I think. I would even go one step further that it's not just about handing over judgment and decisions to a machine that a human would do otherwise. It really is about sort of the loss of a locus of control, either a loss of a locus of control for the individual. So when you're in an autonomous car, you know, you are not driving, the car is driving unless you have the ability to stop it and actually intervene. But again, if it's milliseconds, that might not be possible. It's really about, are we handing over control to a entity that we are willing to trust will be as fair, if not more fair than a human. And that's where it gets to, like um, Kay said, with Europe. The interesting thing with the Europe question is it applies to not just artificial intelligence, <clears throat> but what they call autonomous systems. And so the question is, uh, will this require companies like Google and Facebook to be able to explain why certain results showed up at the top of a page as opposed to the bottom? <clears throat> and are they actually going to be willing to actually be able to do that? Because uh, that actually gets into their search algorithm, their ranking, in some respects, intellectual property. And so this is going to create some interesting challenges of how much are companies going to be able to actually explain 
why the system is doing things a certain way and at the same time protect our intellectual property. And I think that's going to be the interesting sort of experiment uh, for the next two or three years is how can you do that and at the same time preserve possibly your unique advantage as an organization. But David Bray, oh, please, let me. <laughs> so, 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 David, just one, let me just uh, interject here. Uh, so how is this different from what currently is happening with existing technology? Because Google and many other companies do personalize the data that is presented to us. And so these challenges are there. So what makes, why is AI any different? Um, so I think it's just the scale at which it may be used and the scale of the impacts of the decisions. I think, you know, we've always had, um, well, take that back. There's always been the ability to tailor your experience even before the internet um, in terms of uh, what services were provided to you, people were making sense by hand, what things you should receive in the mail in terms of ads, um, or they were using automate, what was called automated data processing in the 1970s. And it's interesting to note that, that as Kay mentioned about the law, obscenity laws came before privacy laws. And that obscenity laws came about in the late 1900s because people started moving into cities. When people were living closer together, now they realize that, well, you might look out a window or see something that you don't really want to see. And so that led to obscenity laws. And then privacy laws came back in the 1970s when you started doing automated data processing. And again, these machines were nowhere near as fast as what we had today, but that somehow there could be a correlation of this person lives at this address, they're getting this type of heart medication, they also are on this type of insurance. At what point do you need to say, well, those are correlations that you shouldn't be able to draw unless that person is given consent. And so I think artificial intelligence, much like those things that came before, it's just the scale and the impact of what this machine might be able to make decisions that will impact your life will be. And so you're right that it's, it's, it's the same trend, but I think it's the, sh the sheer scope and impact that we need to actually take in consideration. And I think it's coupled with things that are going on in our society, so which, which gives it more at a bigger reach. So for example, our aging population, You know, if we decide that we might go the same route as Japan, um, and introduce many more um, artificial intelligence ad, uh, devices in the form of robots, for example, into our elder care, then um, that's going to make the technology so ubiquitous uh, that, that um, it, the scope is, is so much broader. Um, the other way that we might go would be obviously immigration to solve some of the needs, that, the care needs that we have for our elder um, population. And again, you know, that's the, those are going to be different choices around the world. So the issue then is one of scale and then one of pervasiveness. Is that why the issue of uh, the challenge of AI ethics has received such a high profile in recent days? I would well, agree. I, yeah, go ahead, Gabe. I was going to say yes. <laughs> in a nutshell, yes. But I think that actually the AI ethics point um, really came to the general lips of, of media and those people who weren't really thinking about this um, through perhaps uh, DeepMind's um, original creation of its ethics board and um, and, and obviously, you know, there's a seminal quote from Stephen Hawking on the 1st of May 2014, when he said that this could be the best thing that we've ever done or, the, or our last, you know. 
And I think that really captured the attention of the media. And, and whilst there were lots of us thinking about these things before, um, it's become so much part of, of a more public conversation now. And I would build on that and say, <laughs> I do think it's, you know, the, the, the winning of Jeopardy uh, by Watson, um, the winning of a Go championship. There, there's been a series of events that are making this much more real to people. But if you think about it, how many of us in the last 10 years have been on a plane where at some point in time, probably for a majority of the flight, it was on autopilot mm -hmm. and none of us were running around saying, oh dear, this plane is being flown by itself, you know. So it's been there in the background. It's just now becoming increasingly visible to people. Mm -hmm. And sure, it's, it's actually, um, it's raising interesting questions of will this impact employment? Will this impact jobs, the nature of work? And so it's raising a lot of interesting questions. That, I mean, the good news is we're talking about it in some respects before the technology is even able to do some of the things that people are claiming it might be able to do in the future. Kay Firth Butterfield, you are one of the top legal scholars in the world and ethicists and thinking about these issues. And so when it comes to AI ethics, is there is there kind of a, a framework or an approach that we can use to break it down and look at the problem? Um, I think that the way that I have always seen it is that we need to be thinking about responsible design and, uh, and also uh, companies that create AI taking responsibility. Uh, I, either we're a nascent industry or at least a young one um, but we need to have a level of maturity around the product. And so what I was doing um, when I was at Lucid was really sort of talking about the fact that we need to be thinking about responsible design from the moment that we, uh, I, that the, I, we have the idea of a product through to the way that it's sold and, and used. And so I think it's a continuum. Um, and it's something certainly that in my new role at AI Austin, we're going to be looking at and working with companies who are not only producers of AI, but users of AI. David Bray, and you are, have been in public service for much of your career and have had quite a number of roles looking at these kinds of issues. So Kay talks about looking uh, about responsible design, really from building it in from the ground up, looking at the technology through the development, through the point of release as a product. What is your thought on, on that? So I think, obviously, I'm very supportive. I, I would say, from my perspective, I, I, having served in public service as well as in the private sector, you can plan for something to be used a certain way or designed in a certain way. And the reality is humans will find things that you never intended, uh, both good, bad, and mundane. Uh, unfortunately, when the Mumbai terrorist attacks happened, uh, the attackers actually used the things that you and I use on a daily basis for web searches. They used GPS. They used uh, social media, unfortunately, both to plan the attacks and actually execute people. And I don't know if any engineer could have changed the design of web searches or GPS um, or social media to prevent that from happening. And so if we recognize that, yes, design is a good part, but there's still going to be the human agency that is going to possibly use it in ways that you never intended. And it may also be good ways that you never intended. Um, I really want to make sure that when we're thinking about how we 
uh, design and actually how we sort of begin to incorporate these things into society, how we can give people the ability to actually indicate their preferences for what they want done either with them, to them, with their data associated with artificial intelligence. And so there may be some people that are like, I'm all in. I would like to have the autonomous car. I'd like to, when I retire, to be able to have AI-provided care, and that's something that I have now given my consent to. There may be other people that may be wanting to live off the grid, and that's also perfectly fine too. So how can we continue to recognize, it's almost like an inversion of uh, the golden rule, which is you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's almost sort of the interesting tweak to say, do unto others as they will permit you to do unto them. And then that's again, recognizing that what artificial intelligence is, is it's giving up some control, it's recognizing something else is making a decision. And in some respects, it could be the same thing for a human, but it's letting the human that is having those actions occur still has the ability to indicate their preferences as to what they're comfortable with. And then ultimately, when you do do these things, if it's in the public space, having openness and transparency. So as Kay mentioned, it's not just being able to explain why the machine made a decision, but then also be able to indicate what it what was its range of possibilities, what is it actually considering, what is it not considering when it makes these decisions. So we can again have some informed understanding about the scope and sheer impact of artificial intelligence. I, I Just to echo some of those things, I think that everything that David just said is great and really important. And it leads to the need for us to have a much more open conversation around the sort of things that we're doing. Um, one, one of the great things of, of having this conversation with you, Michael, is that we're reaching people who, who will be using AI and um, we're able to have this interdisciplinary conversation, which is so important uh, that we have at this level and at a wider level. So, Kay, um, this issue of the uh, unintended consequences of AI, of the use of AI, or really any other kind of technology, we don't know in advance how people will apply these technologies. How does that inform the shaping of uh, laws, policy, and the, the ethical thinking as well? Well, I... Yes, of course, you know, with, with every technology that we've ever built as humans, there have been bad actors. Um, and so my raison d'etre when I'm thinking about this is thinking about the things that we can do to be as safe as possible and to educate people correctly in the use of, of the technology. Um, but I agree with David that there are going to be bad actors who are going to use technology in, in, in bad ways. The best thing we can do is try and stay ahead of those people doing those things. Um, I, it, it sounds like a cop-out answer, but, but it's, you know, since, the ha since, since someone invented a rock or picked up a rock and hit somebody else on the head with it, we've been having this trouble as human beings. Yeah, and I would actually uh, reinforce what Kay's saying. I mean, when, when the car came out, that allowed interstate crime, which was something that had never been possible before. I mean, you could now potentially drive to a state that you weren't living in, commit that crime and drive out, and the local law enforcement wouldn't know who you were because you were not a resident of that city. Um, does that mean we shouldn't have cars? 
Um, no, but I think that's, again, we should recognize that, again, it's how we humans choose how to use things, whether it's good or bad, that'll have impacts. What can we do, as Kay mentioned, to educate the public, to ideally make it available to as many people as possible? And I think that gets to another ethical dimension that's worth talking about, which is, I personally would like to see artificial intelligence be as available to as many people as possible. So it's not just a niche only available to a few. And so I applaud efforts like OpenAI and other endeavors that are really rolling it out so it can be used by everyone and it's not limited to a few niche actors because I think that's gonna be so key to making sure we can have these informed conversations. Um, I would not be surprised. I hope in the future you have uh, stu students as early as elementary school and middle school beginning to do experiments with artificial intelligence so that as they grow up, they are much more aware of what it can and cannot do and how it can actually enhance their lives. And so I think that that's, that's a really important thing because, you know, um, one of the questions, one of the things we talk, have been talking about is um, taking some control for ourselves as individuals. And unless we empower people to do that, then by, through education, then people are not going to be able to take back that power. Um, and so, uh, and, and also I think that there's an issue around um, that we're seeing in social media at the moment. I've seen it a lot on Twitter in the last two days that people are saying, oh, well, move, don't, you know, there's, uh, we've got, we have to defend our privacy. There's a lot of fear of surveillance, switching to tour and, and more secure uses of email and things like that. That is not a positive sign for um, the way that, that some people in, in our society are thinking about artificial intelligence. Well, of course, there's also a great concern that the robots are going to be taking over our jobs. And especially in light of the political climate today, that's particularly so, particularly uh, pronounced, those concerns. And so what about that? That must intersect the, the ethical perspectives in one way or another as well. How do we think about that? Well, I, I think that we do have to be very worried about it because uh, AI, in my view, is a technology that will benefit mankind or humankind enormously. And um, there are some great challenges that we have as humans and for our planet that we really can't solve without AI. And so we certainly don't want to see a groundswell of, of opinion against AI by people who are losing their jobs to it. Um, we've all read for the Oxford Martin study and the Bank of America study that say that, you know, 47 and I think 52% of, of jobs in America currently done um, will go to automation in the next 15 or 20 years. But we have to think about how the, about the complexity of, of job loss, because we don't know what the future jobs are going to be. But what we do know is that as people lose their jobs in something that hasn't been done in the past, we need and can use AI to retool and reskill those that, that, work, that workforce to create the jobs of the future. So I would build on that too. I mean, again, if we go back to the analogy of when the car came out, um, I'm sure there was a large portion of the world's population that were involved in raising horses and taking care of horses and things like that. 
but that didn't mean we shouldn't not recognize the car as an advantage because we were worried about people losing their jobs taking care of horses. And so I think this raises a question about as jobs are lost because they can be automated, what do we as society owe those people whose jobs have been displaced to help them retool, retrain as best as possible for something else? Um, and the jury is out as to whether more jobs will be created versus destroyed as a result of artificial intelligence. So we need to monitor that and be aware of it. We also need to be aware that there is what's called the unemployment effect on people's health, which is we humans need to have a purpose. And so a future in which we don't need to work because artificial intelligence is doing everything may actually not be a nirvana as it sounds like because we won't have purposes or maybe we'll find purposes through advocations as opposed to vocations. But that's a collective conversation we need to have, which is, where are we going together as a society? How can we make sure we bring as many people along? And as Kay said, ideally make it so they're not as fearful about artificial intelligence. I personally think the future is really gonna be about pairing humans with AIs. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, artificial intelligence is a lot like a five-year-old. Um, so for example, if you have a five-year-old, none of us teach a five-year-old specifically to speak saying subject, verb, and object. Uh, We just expose the four and five-year-old to enough language before they begin to actually construct sentences on their own. And eventually they might say something like, I walked to school today. And when you ask them, why did they say it that way, as opposed to say, to school today I walked, the five-year-old is just going to say, well, because I never heard it said that way before. They're not going to have a deeper reason why. And so I think right now, where there's going to be plenty of automation that's possible by machines and by artificial intelligence, when you ask that deeper question of why right now, it's just going to be because that's what I've seen in the data or that's what I've never seen before. It's not going to be telling you the deeper reason that's going to require humans at the moment to be able to dive deeper. And so I think it's really going to be really about pairing humans and artificial intelligence, at least for the next 20 years, in my opinion. I certainly agree with that. Um, and I think that it's a great, great thing for us to have the, the augmentation uh, of AI as humans. We'll be able to do our jobs better and, and, and um, as I say, perhaps solve some of these these intractable, currently intractable problems. But I think two points I wanted to just come back to on, on David's um, comment. Uh, one is that it was easier um, for people who had been looking after horses to perhaps move to looking after cars, um, uh, you know, grooming the horse and polishing the car, their, their manual labor. Um, it, if we are looking at a change which actually requires um, a change from manual labor to, um, to coding or any of those sort of things, then that, that's a much bigger um, gap to bridge. And we need to think about how that, that might be managed. And also, um, as a historian by background, uh, I really worry about the analogies with the Industrial Revolution because the Industrial Revolution hurt a great deal of people over a long period. And yes, we came through it and we, and we developed something better. But um, the, it looks as if this Industrial Revolution is, uh, will be much faster and we need to prepare not to hurt as many people very quickly. 
I, I think, and I think that's so true, actually, because it's it's worth noting that when the Industrial Revolution happened and people moved from working on farms basically 24-7 to factories and doing basically rote repetitive actions, mm-hmm. aside from the fact that doing rote repetitive actions for 12 hours at a time is not healthy for anybody, mm-hmm. uh, the other challenge that was also very painful was the way society collectively dealt with that transition from agriculture to industry was actually through alcohol and gin. Um, and, and so... Similarly, when we made the transition from the Industrial Revolution to the post-World War II era in which people didn't need to work as much and actually work nine-to-five jobs, the interesting thing that happened with that was there are some that actually argue the way we dealt with that was through TV dinners and sitcoms, which, while not as bad as alcohol, we still needed an outlet. And so Kay is absolutely right that this is going to happen in a much shorter time period. It may be as big, if not bigger, change. And so having, again, that conversation about what do we as society owe each other is really key to have now. Um, because we don't know, any, none of us know if the job we're currently doing today in two or three years will be done better by a machine. You know, one of the, uh, the, the big differences, I think, between this change that's taking place in terms of the, the fears around job displacement versus during the period of factory automation is when factories were being automated, they brought in robots and people, you could walk into the factory and you could see here is, or they brought in machines, and you could see this machine is doing this task, and it's a physical thing, and you can see how this task is now being done that, that I used to do. And so I understand how my job is being displaced. However, with AI, I think part of the fear is it's, there's this unseen hand. There's the computer that's a black box, and we have no visibility or transparency into it. And it's changing things. It's, it's making my job, or I have the fear it's making my job going away. But it's not tangible. And that changes, the, that changes the psychology of how people relate to the technology. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, my experience is, uh, again, I previously worked in the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program. So we dealt with bioterrorism. And what makes bioterrorism such a challenging subject is actually the fact that it's not seeable. That if, that, that if you say something bad has happened, even if you haven't done anything, the fact that it's not seeable will make people worry, make people fearful, and make them even think maybe something's occurred. And so we humans don't do well with things that are invisible. And right now, most artificial intelligences are not written in a way in which you can easily show what they're doing, like you said with the factory example. And so I do think part of the interesting ethics of design going forward is how easily can you elucidate both what the machine is designed to consider recognizing again it's not going to be like a a plus b plus c equals d that's not what artificial intelligence does it's goal bound it's often exploring a space much larger than you can express in a you know in a very simple diagram but something that can help people understand what it is possible of doing what it's not possible of doing to try and overcome that invisible fear factor and I think that that's interesting because actually you have two sides of the equation here. We, when we have the, the AI that can't be seen because it's locked away in our computers or in, in the, the black box, as it, as it is often talked about. But when we actually do put AI into robots, we, um, it, it's, it's very interesting because we then think, see them as being created in our own image. Um, and um, I think that that's 
that that's really interesting. You see robots being called cool and and the people relating to robots almost as if they're humans. Right. Yeah, and then, well, even with computers, how many of us have tried to hit a computer because it did something we didn't want it to do, thinking it would somehow respond to the fact that we hit it? Um, you're right. I mean, there's there's cases of young children being educated through a robot, and they become their friends and they hug them. So we we do anthropomorphize machines um, if we can see them. And and just I was reading today that that Google is looking at cybersecurity and had named the three algorithms um, with human names that they were using <laughs> so we <laughs> so we so uh so so we want to have warm fuzzy ai algorithms that make us feel good we have uh really just a couple of minutes left and so let's just finish uh k first and then i'll ask david uh just in a, in a minute what are what advice suggestions do you have for people who are thinking about uh, the law in, and the, the evolving law and in regard to, to AI? Well, I think the advice to lawyers is that very soon you will be receiving, you will see those um, cases coming across your desk and you need to get up to speed around artificial intelligence and um, what's going on in artificial intelligence now. I think in uh, just going back to that job creation thing, actually there are going to be a lot of jobs around. Um, so we're not going to kill all the lawyers by automating them um, just yet uh, because we are going to see experts needed in court, for example, instead of cross-examining a driver, um, we might have to cross-examine an algorithm, AKA an expert in this system. Um, if you are going to be somebody, if you are, in any business, you need to be looking at what AI can do for you and what the impact of AI will be on your business. So there are two pieces of that, um, because I genuinely believe that AI will change everything. And if you don't start looking now, you will be too far behind. And David Bray, your thoughts on guidance for policymakers who are looking at the policy, the public sector policy and regulatory side of this. Any, any thoughts or guidance very, very quickly? Right, so again, wearing my Eisenhower fellow hat, not my FCC hat, uh, what the conversations I had in Australia and Taiwan is cloud computing in some respects is the appetizer. Artificial intelligence and the internet of everything is really gonna be the main course that we're gonna be uh, consuming over the next five years. And I don't know if I can necessarily give advice to necessary policymakers, but I would say what Kay said, for any organization, any entity, recognize that this will disrupt how you operate. And it's a question of whether or not you are very intentional about it or someone else is going to do it to you. So start on that journey now, start having conversations. And if there's one thing I'd really call out is look at the open AI effort um, and other efforts like it that are trying to make this open and available to people as a place to either begin experimenting or if you don't have the time to experiment, maybe have some of your employees begin to experiment with what's possible because we're only gonna get the expertise we need to know in this era through the experiments that we need to do with artificial intelligence. And I think just to quickly add to that, we need to have more networking. Um, we need to talk about this more. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Yes, thank you, Michael. This is a great service. Well, thank you too. 
This has been a, an amazing conversation, and in about a week we'll have the transcript up on the CXO Talk site, and you can dig in and you can watch the replay. Just a tremendous amount of information. You have been watching episode number 203 of CXO Talk. Our guests today have been David Bray, who is who is here in his Eisenhower Fellowship, wearing his Eisenhower Fellowship hat, I guess is the right way to say it. Although he's also the, uh, the CIO of the FCC. And we have been talking as well with Kay Firth Butterfield, who is truly one of the world's leading experts on the, the law and ethics of AI. And a clear message has been that AI is going to be changing a lot of parts of our lives. And for all of us, regardless of the job that we do, the time to start learning about this, thinking about this, and understanding more of it, that time is now. So thank you so much, and uh, we have another CXO Talk tomorrow, actually. So join us. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great day. Bye-bye.